Welcome to the Normal and Good Podcast. I'm Amber. And I'm Lindsay. And we are recording on Zoom again because I'm still sick. And she's a very good friend and who doesn't want to get my baby sick. So Yes. If there was not a newborn baby, I wouldn't worry about it as much. But newborn babies being what they are and existing. Yeah. Um, So we are on episodes, season two. Episodes 11 and 12 of Hannibal. Yes, we are. And, and oh my gosh. Yes, you want to just. Exactly. <laughs> she cries. She knows. Yeah. I officially marked this podcast as explicit in iTunes and stuff so that I can stop having to edit out swear words because I decided that I wanted to say them. All right. So let's get started. Episodes 11 and 12. Um, Uh, I'll read the first one, and you can read the second one. All right. Episode 11 is called Ko no Mono, which definition I found on Janice Poon's blog. She was the food stylist for the show. Yeah. She says, it is the course of preserved vegetables that signals the beginning of the end of the Kaiseki dinner. Its crisp textures and aromatic vinegared flavors sharpen the senses and prepare the diner for the final courses. And I thought that was a much better definition than the like half a sentence that Wikipedia has. So, oh yeah, it was written by Jeff Vlaming and Andy Black and Brian Fuller. It was directed by David Slade. It aired May ninth, twenty fourteen, and was viewed by one point nine five million people. Oh wow, nice! And episode twelve. I hope I'm not butchering this is Tomewan, a miso-based or vegetable soup served with rice. It was written by Chris Brancato and Brian Fuller and Scott Nimmerfro. Directed by Michael Reimer, it aired May 16th, 2014, and was viewed by 2.32 million viewers. I wonder why episode 11 was... It seems like a weird dip in viewers that's not consistent with the rest of the season. I wonder if something else was happening that day. I forgot to look it up. If I wanted to look it up, I would take my phone out of my pocket, but I have my blanket on and I am strapped in, ready to go. So these two episodes, I keep saying this every week, I swear they get more intense. So you're not wrong. If this episode is two hours and some change long of a podcast, I apologize But I'm not actually that sorry. That's just how this is going to be. So. My mom actually asked me because I was telling her that I didn't get much sleep last night. And I was like, oh, I'm going to need to caffeine up before Amber and I record. She's like, well, can't you cut it short? I'm like, mother, you don't understand. These episodes were a lot. We're not cutting this short. Like We could if we wanted to, but we don't want to. There's too much. So I didn't get very much sleep last night either, um, which was really annoying because I have been sick and I have really enjoyed my four days off. I slept like 16 hours a day for four days and it was wonderful and it made a big difference in how I was feeling. 
I was going to so say was, that probably really aided in your recovery. Um, it did. I like, I felt a lot better than I expected in a shorter time. But last night I couldn't fall asleep. I was so hyped that I kept having to pause and take breaks. And then I got distracted on TikTok. And then I was up to like 1.30 because when I finally did get in bed at like 12, I could not fall asleep. Oh, yeah. Super obnoxious. Anyway, okay. Let's jump into it. We'll start with episode 11. Boy. So, a dream has has been the trend lately. Uh, These episodes start with uh, a dream. And in this one, the Wendigo is watching the raven stag dying. And then antlered Will Wendigo is birthed from the dead raven stag like the horse in the episodes with Peter. Yeah. And that's kind of all that happens. But it feels like a lot. Because we've seen Will with his antlers um, in various hallucinations and stuff. Yeah. But this is the first time that he has been black like the Wendigo. Which feels significant. Yeah. Add to that, you get all of the... um the imagery of a birth of some kind, including an actual amniotic sac, and, like, that's a lot. I think the superstition about a baby being born in the call, as as it is said, is uh, that the person is destined to do great things. At least according to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which I was listening to yesterday. You'll need to read that. You really do. You will know so much more about me when you do, which is a weird thing to say when you already know so much about me. (laughs) But it's one of the three books that if I had to explain myself to a person, it's one of the books that I have them read. So the Wendigo is born out of the Ravenstag, or the Will, the Wildigo, as I'm going to start calling it. The (laughs) Wildigo! Apparently that's what we call it now. Um, and then Hannibal and Will are having dinner. And I don't know about you, but I'm starting to lose track of when they're having actual therapy that Will is paying for. Maybe. And just hanging out. Yeah. That line has been smudged. Most lines have been smudged at this point, I think. Yeah, but that line has been, like, a sad girl forgetting she has eyeliner on and just rubbing the heck out of her eyes smudged. It's me. Um, I haven't worn makeup in, like, a week because my eyes have been so irritated. Um, So for dinner, they have... What are they... How do you pronounce it? I... I I don't know. I was paying attention, and then I forgot. I could barely understand what Hannibal was saying. And even His accent is usually not that bad, but it was really tough in this scene. I don't think it was on him. I think it's just I think it's just one of those French words that it's a lot of the same kind of vowels and consonants, and so everything is awful. I think it's ortolans. That's what we're going to say, and we're going to decide that that is correct. So Ortolans are small songbirds, and I found Janice Poon's Blogspot blog, 
that she published May 11th, 2014. Uh-huh. That was her food stylist diary from when she was designing this scene. So, um, I'm just going to read a couple of that because I think it's really cool. And then we can t- break down the scene. Um, oh, and also I looked up that Orderlins are actually frequently mentioned in the Thomas Harris novels. Like oh. Hannibal, as a child, hears them and like knows that that's the songbird that he's hearing growing up in Europe. Um, so Janice is trying to figure out how to create these this scene because it's obviously important. I mean, all the food scenes are important, but this one feels a little more important. So she says, the problem that I have is that eating the bird is illegal. I couldn't buy one, let alone the two dozen I would need for the dining room scene. And as dedicated as I am to this show, I'm not going to get a BB gun and hide to the hills of Gdansk to bag them. That's a great... High to the hills of Gdansk. It's such a great sentence. That's a wonderful sentence. So she kicked around some ideas. I thought that in the close-ups they looked like mini corn dogs, which is funny. But that wasn't what she ended up going with. So she goes on to say, I decide that marzipan is my best alternative. Mass and Hugh will just have to act like they're enjoying it. I carve a little wooden cradle for forming the birds so they won't have flat backs and cut up a square of fiberglass mesh from a window screen to press against the marzipan to make the skin texture. Pine nuts for eyes and spaghetti for the little legs. I make them hollow so they will be easier to eat. And although Mass and Hugh hate the marzipan, they do the scene beautifully, sending my handmade baby birds to a fiery, sticky death by cognac flambe, eating them whole, imagining the crunchy bones, guts, armoniac-filled lungs, take after take after take. So, yeah. Am I the only person who genuinely enjoys eating marzipan? I don't think I've ever had marzipan. It's just a sugary almond paste that you can sculpt. I mean, I think, like, here and there, it's fine. But imagine doing this take dozens of times and having to eat a dozen little marzipan birds. And they're not, like, bite size either. They're kind of like, it's like putting a whole golf ball in your mouth. It's not exactly comfortable, but you can do it. It's, like, tongue-sized. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I would not be the actor who had to have a spit bucket if I was a professional actor doing a scene with food, like in the preface that Mass wrote to the cookbook, oh the yeah, cookbook, he mentions that they a lot of the time didn't use a spit bucket just because the food was so good they just wanted to keep eating it. Oh so, yeah, especially when it was like foie gras or something. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about how Ortolans are prepared. It's that the birds, um, it's not force-fed like foie gras is. They are fattened, but it's because these birds feed at night, and they feed a ton at night. So in the olden days, the birds were, like, blindfolded and just fed constantly. And then today, they're usually raised in covered cages, and they just eat constantly. So they get nice and plump. And then you drown them in cognac, and then you light them on fire, and then you eat them. 
and it sounds ridiculous and I really kind of want to try it. Well, especially because obviously I am not terribly experienced with alcohol, but I'm led to believe that good cognac is, especially if it's an Armagnac, as I believe Hannibal mentions, is somewhat expensive. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I don't know if he mentions it specifically, but Janice did in her blog post. So, um, oh, Maybe and traditionally, okay. when they're eaten, because it is such a kind of, the word is always debauched, um, eating this bird whole in one bite, um, people cover their faces with their cloth napkin to hide themselves from God. And that segues us back into the show. Because Hannibal then says, I don't hide from God. Which reminded me of what I said last week about how he has no illusions about what he is. Fair point. Um, And then they eat the Ortolans and it's weirdly sexual. (laughs) Well, just this whole thing. He uses the word debauched to describe the experience of eating this bird, which weirdly, the fact that they eat it whole was what grossed Jesse out watching it with me. He's like, the beak? And it's like, you chew and swallow shrimp tails. A beak is basically like a shrimp tail. And I figure with a bird so small that has been so recently on fire, bird bones are super brittle anyway. It's probably really crispy. That's what I've heard. I really want to try it. Like, I know I have kind of an oral fixation. I like snacks that are crunchy. For that reason. Because they're crunchy, I like the sound. You love the crunch. The crunch. Man, (laughs) I love it. Well, also, usually when we see Hannibal having dinner with someone... He's usually at the head of his table, or occasionally he's on the end of the table across from Jack. With Will, he is right across from him in the frickin' center of the table. He doesn't are they in the that. center of the table? I didn't notice that. Oh, they are in the center of the table. <laughs> but, like, the close-up shots, it is just the mouth. And then the throat's swallowing. Yeah. My note on this was just, Jesus Lord. Which is probably my favorite thing to say. Um, Because it can be sarcastic or, like, genuine. Oh, it gets more sexual, though. Because then Hannibal says, after my first Ortolan, I was euphoric. And I said, oh, is that what they're calling it these days? Like, honestly, he keeps using sex words in this scene. Like, we get it. We get what you want, Hannibal. We get it. Calm down. And then Will says, I was euphoric when I killed Freddie Lowndes. And my note just says, murder sex, murder sex, murder sex, murder sex. Because at this point, there is no more subtlety in this show. Which there wasn't a ton of subtlety to begin with, but there was kind of some, and there's none anymore. Yeah. Another line that has been smudged like that, like the eyeliner of a distraught teenage girl. 
Yes. Like the eyeliner of Hannibal being the distraught teenage girl. (laughs) (laughs) And the scene ends with Hannibal saying, you must understand that blood and breath are only elements undergoing change to fuel your radiance. So Will is radiant now. Any pretense of subtlety has been just thrown out the window, set on fire, and sent on its merry way. My shipper heart is dying. I'm so happy. Speaking of things that have been thrown out, sent on fi- set on fire, and sent on their merry way. Ayo! <laughs> <laughs> that was gorgeous. So yeah, Freddie Lowndes' flaming body in a wheelchair. Down a ramp, through a parking garage, right to her designated name on it parking spot like dang mm-hmm. and the poor fire uh, the for, uh the parking lot attendant guy he like gets his little fire extinguisher and he runs over there and i'm like oh you're useless <laughs> but it's so he like is trying to be so good like honestly there are so many people at that point like <sighs> I feel like depending on how much experience you've had in retail, I feel like Jesse would just kind of look at it like, huh, that's above my pay grade. I'm calling someone who it's in their pay grade. I feel like I would just look on in shock and awe, just not even knowing how to process it. Like he's the security for the parking garage though. So, you know, I guess it makes sense, but it was just like weirdly adorable. So then back at the lab, uh, the dental records confirm that this is Freddie Lowndes' corpse. And Will is there looking like a fucking Ken doll. His hair is smoother than usual. It's so <laughs> soft. And sh- he's so shiny. I can't get over it. Why are you laughing at me? Just, I've never, I, it's been so long since I've heard someone described as a Ken doll. He's just like, that stereotypically like perfect and like i said last week i'm not a gay man but i want a slice of that pie as a gay man like obviously he's attractive from a female standpoint but like if i were a man i would also find that very attractive so anyway I've never I've never put myself in that sort of shoe. Oh man, this is a whole conversation we need to have. Okay, we'll put that on the table for later. Um so the killer cut out Freddy's back muscles with a hunting knife. Hmm. <laughs> Hannibal says this is something sacred. Okay, Hannibal, we get it. You worship him. Jeez. Like, there's not even a lot, like, we spent so much of last week breaking down the step-by-step stuff, you know, and so much of the last 12 weeks, plus the six weeks that we took off randomly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Breaking down the step-by-step detailed stuff, and, and there's no more of that right now because it's all on the table, which, by the way, is the tagline for this podcast. It's all on the table. 
um, there's no subtlety left in this show, really. Like, people are just saying what they mean and owning stuff. I love it. Honestly, um, listening to Hannibal, especially lately, I just want to give 16 to 17 year old me a break. Because sometimes I look back on her actions and I cringe. Not anymore. What do you mean? Just, have you ever looked back on your life and thought to yourself, wow, I was stupidly obvious about X person I had a crush on. And I was like stupidly infatuated in a way that makes me cringe now. Yeah, I ended up marrying that guy for a little while. Watching Hannibal cleared me of my cringe. That's a good point. He is the obviousest guy. That's a hard word to say. (laughs) So then they talk about how fire is like cleansing and mythical and yada yada yada. And Will says she won't rise from the ashes, but her killer, a.k.a. me, will. And Hannibal says he's the one to be noticed now. Like, can you guys two just chill for like a second? You could put hard eye stickers. On my face. I was going to say on Matt's face. As in, in character as Hannibal, and you would not change much about this scene. He's the vine. Hard eyes, motherfucker. That's, that's him. Um, the rest of us are all out here like, can you maybe chill? So, we'll just keep on plugging. So Margot takes a pregnancy test. It's positive. I had to look up what a positive pregnancy test looks like because I was confused. Because I've never taken a pregnancy test. I usually go Um, for the ones that just say the words. Yeah, well, and that's what I figured most people did these days. But the visual of that was actually really cool. Like the ultra close up of the paper turning blue. Oh, yeah. Um, So she goes to tell Hannibal about it. She's like, it's not even an embryo yet. But here I am feeling maternal. And then Will is also there. So that's fun and awkward. Um, But this is why I was like, no, she's still a lesbian. Because she wasn't sleeping with Will because she liked Will. She was sleeping with Will because she needed some sperm. Huh. Um, So she's able to... I mean, I figure most people are. Like, you hear about that sometimes, you know? Like, you hear about gay men who have families, who have fathered children, and then come out, you know, when they're middle-aged. You know, so it it does happen. Yeah. But it's not the preference. And if she likes women, like if... Yeah. Like a a physiological response is going to happen if the right buttons are pushed, regardless of who's pushing them for most people. So. Um, She also has a line in the last episode about how Will... Or wait... This isn't in either of the episodes. It's in the script. But uh, Hannibal says, Will Graham is not a lesbian. And she says, he made a good show of it. Which makes me think that Will Graham knows which buttons to push. 
Um, so he looks uncomfortable. <laughs> it's kind of like they're at couples counseling and Hannibal is their therapist. And it's really kind of funny. Um, yeah. Which I don't blame him because it's like it was consensual. But he didn't the fathering was- a child part is not consensual. He didn't know he was being used as what amounts to a sperm donor. Yeah. So yeah, it is a little icky. Um, but I kind of think they all handle it really well. And Margot says, you can be involved as little or as much as you want to. But you don't need to feel any pressure because I don't feel like you're necessary. But if you want to be involved, then absolutely, that's fine. Which is as good an outlook as I think you can have in a situation like this. I love that she even mentions, like, it'd be nice for my kid to have a male influence other than their uncle. He's the worst, because then the next thing we see is how the worst he is. I am so fired up. I want to pound my fist on my table, but I won't. As soon as I saw him watching the, like, what I assume is a field trip of kids going through the Verger stables, and I see this one kid hanging back from the group, my actual note was, oh, please, Mason, don't talk to the kids. Like, someone please protect these children from this guy. And the fact that he, he picks out the kid who's hanging back from the group and knows he's a foster and then does what he does. Like, I was never fostered, okay? I'm adopted, but I was placed as a baby because my birth mom picked my parents out of a file. And, like, you know, I was made to feel very secure. I was, it was made very clear to me that I was loved on both ends. But at the same time, even then, there are times that I would, you know, worry about that sort of thing. And oh my gosh, telling a foster kid who's in such a volatile and and vulnerable emotional state that the things that Mason said, oh, I, (laughs) flames on the side of my face more than anything else in this show up to that point. I've got to say... Um, having read the uncut version of this scene... It could have been worse? It could have been worse. Oh, <gasps> no! So, it still sucks, but it, it could have been worse. What did they cut out? Um, Mason told the kid to kill Kitty Cat. Jeez, and holy sh- Oh! He said that... Um, if the police take you away from Mama and Shelly, I think, Uh um, they're going to take Kitty Cat. So, but if you shoot Kitty Cat, they can't take him. Oh. Oh, my heck. Yeah. He's the worst. So again, even though we didn't see it, the actor who plays Mason, who, by the way, is phenomenal. Uh, so he knows this, you know, it's in his actor brain and it's coming out in his character. Even if we, the viewer, don't see that line specifically, which I think is always important to remember. Um, also, the kid is also named Franklin. Just like Hannibal's whiny patient from season one, which I thought was a weird choice. 
I totally forgot about Franklin from season one. I kind of miss him. He was so normal and sad. I mean, like, he was a wreck, but he was a really normal wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to everyone else in this show. And, you know, I feel like when, he, when, when adult Franklin from season one broke down because he thought his best friend might be a murderer, I feel like that was how most of us would react if we thought, if we started to just notice things like, I think my best friend might be a serial killer. Like yeah, that he was really, really ordinary, which is why he had to go. Um, and then Mason takes one of his little paper squares and absorbs child Franklin's tear and drinks it into a martini because he's a fucking psycho creep. Like, I think this was the point in the episode where Jesse said to me, I'm starting to not like this show. This is not uplifting. This is very upsetting. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's not really. Like, I mean, present company being myself excluded. It's a dark show. I mean, well, it's a dark show regardless. I really like it. But it's not for everyone. Like, Jesse's still enjoying commenting on it with me, and he's still, you know, enjoying spending the time with me as I watch it for this show. But afterward, I was, we still had some time before we needed to go to bed, and he's like, I don't know, just watching anything else after what we just saw would feel like in Bambi when they cut from Bambi's mom being dead to the shot of the birds and it's tra-la-la-la-la-la tweet-diddly and you're like what <sighs> just happened yeah man that is a really good juxtaposition i've never thought about that before um that's why when i first started watching the handmaid's tale jane the virgin was my recovery show and then i burned through all of that and ran out of it so then i would just take like months long breaks from the handmaid's tale um i think the difference is the handmaid's tale is really realistic and this feels less so to me so yeah um so yeah this whole scene is just to show us how much of a monster mason is as if we didn't already know because he's going to feed Margot to his pigs <sighs> In any kind of just world, this man would have been arrested, locked away in a padded room. I mean, he gets some justice. But... To be fair, it is a common. Ah. But we'll get there when we get there. So, (sighs) the next scene is at Will's house. Turns out, he's still a sweaty nightmare boy. He's having nightmares about Freddy's wheelchair uh, scene. And there's a knock at the door. It's Alana and Applesauce. At first I thought things were going to get better, and then this whole scene just, as a Willana shipper, this scene feels like you've been run over by a Mack truck sorry it's okay i'll be okay 
I'll be Ugh. fine. As soon as someone writes my freaking Willana Winstall Sauce 101 Dalmatians AU, I will be fine. I asked about it on Reddit, and they pointed me to a Hanagram 101 Dalmatians AU, and I was like, no, that's not what I asked for. So there might not be one, but I actually haven't gone on AO3 and looked for one myself, so maybe I should do that first. And you're like my magical AO3 seek and find. I I am convinced that if you can't find it, it doesn't exist. Between have I found you things before? Yes. What? Yes. You. I don't remember this. I was having trouble finding any kind of um, Spock and Christine Chapel fanfic. Uh, I told you I was going to write one of those, didn't I? <gasps> it was going to be sad, though. It's okay. I know you like the sad stuff. I do like the sad stuff. I'm really good at writing unrequited love because for most of my life, that's what I had. Um, I say that in like all frankness, not being like bummed at all. Um, So Alana shows up and Will is like, do we do friendly visits anymore? And then she straight up asks him if he killed Freddy. And it hurts. Oh gosh, it hurts. I tried to take like less uber detailed notes as than I usually do because that's not really necessary. Um, so this feels a little more disjointed to me than usual, but oh well. That was um, me too. And then Will Graham says, I told everyone Hannibal was a killer and no one believed me. Just like no one would believe you if you said I was a killer. And his face when he says this is terrifying. He's and also gorgeous. And he's so bitter. And she's so... It just hurts. This scene heckin' hurts me, Amber. This scene hurts me. I'm sorry. Um, but they like could his have face... been so happy, but everything was shitty. <laughs> he, like... He's bitter. But he's also, like... Really mentally present yeah his face is really clear he doesn't have his cringy fake smile on which is unsettling to look at um which we've never really talked about before but i hate it and he doesn't have that on his face he's just like no this is how it is no one believed me and no one would believe you and it sounds like a threat I just, ah, uh, this scene was so hard. I hated it so dang much. Well, we've got a little bit more to slog through. It's okay. Um, Alana says, I don't think Hannibal is good for you. I think your relationship is destructive. And it will, like, so quickly, almost like he can't stop himself. He says, he's good enough for you. Like, that whole exchange, like, on the one hand, Alana says what I have been thinking pretty much, like, a facet of, you know, my my whole, you know, hanagram is not what you would call healthy. And, but also just, like, it's the whole he's 
he's good enough for you, like, dang, but also, bitter isn't a good look for you, Will. You're hurting me. <sighs> he's not wrong, though. Like, I know. But, like, speaking you know. from his point of view, it's super hypocritical of her to be coming over here and telling him this when she is sleeping with the guy. Yeah. Like, like I, I can totally see where he's coming from. I know. And I can too. But it still hurts. So, and I just, I love that line because it makes him, like, because my shipper mind, you know, my rainbow-colored slash goggles are, like, <laughs> are painting it with the jealousy brush. He's good enough for you, so why isn't he good enough for me? Man, You know? Um, I don't think it's actually like that, but I like that I can interpret it that way if I want to. I'm, I'm here for a plurality of interpretation. Like, I know that I've been doing this, that I've been noting details for interpretations for your rainbow your rainbow colored slash goggles, but also my own interpretations. And I just I, I was like, why do I do this when I interpret stuff? And then I realized it's <laughs> there's a Pirates of the Caribbean quote that perfectly sums up how I interpret this this I just this perked show. up like a golden retriever. I know. Please keep talking. <laughs> In in Dead Man's Chest. It's my when, favorite one. When Teodama says, same story, different version, and all are true. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. Oh, man. I love that show so much. I need to do a marathon. Maybe that's what I'll do this weekend. After I go buy some sexy boots, I need some sexy boots. If you want to come boot shopping with me, you are invited. That sounds wonderful. Um, so I want to be a part of this Pirates Marathon. Okay. Um, hopefully I'm feeling better, in which case you are totally welcome. Um, I'm feeling better every day, so I, I anticipate being fine. If you're not better enough, then we should definitely do another marathon when you are. Later when I'm feeling better. Um, okay, one more thing in this scene, and then we can get out of it. Yes. Is that um, Alana mentions that she's afraid. I think she mentions that. And Will goes into his house, and he gets a pistol. And he gives it to her. And he says... It takes nine millimeter rounds, get a box, go to a range, don't be afraid to use it. So he's like, hey, I know you don't know how to use a gun. Learn how to use this gun. Which I think is probably like one of the most honest things that Will has done in a while. It was the sweet note in this very bitter for me scene. It was... Well, it, as a hanagram shipper, I love what it sets up for later, too. But I also just like, you know, as not a serial killer, like, it is such a good and decent thing for him to do, and maybe he's risking a lot by doing it, but he can't not try to at least save her life a little bit. Like... <laughs> That one part of my heart will go on almost started playing in my head when he gave her that gun. That's where I'm at right now. That's what this scene has driven me to. The next thing we see is at Hannibal's office, Mason Verger has arrived to do some therapy and he lays on the couch like a fucking douche. Nobody lays on the couch. He does lay on the couch like a douche. He's like, I'm going to take off my jacket and lay on the couch. 
And Hannibal just looks at him <laughs> and he's just like, okay, I guess we'll do this. And then he tells Hannibal how he used to take advantage of kids when he ran a summer camp. Like, how has this man, this horrible, hor- I, I can't call him the slimy, the sli- this slimiest man because we already had the slimiest man. He's worse than the slimiest man. He's the he's, worst man. He's, he's, he's the worst man. And he didn't go to prison because he's a rich white guy. He got some community service instead. Oh, yeah. I think my note was, of effing course, Mason got community service. Of course he did. He's a rich white guy. And um, pre-Me Too. So, you know, it's the Wild West. And Hannibal legit is like, can you please come sit in the chair? And he leaves his coat on the couch, and Hannibal just looks at it. Hannibal does a lot of looking at things in this episode. He looks at the chair. He looks at Mason on the couch. He looks at the coat. Speaking of Mason's coat and what he's wearing, it's a pale blue shirt and a white vest suit. And with the reddest tie like somehow it's even more blood red than Hannibal's stupid devil went down to Georgia courtroom suit. Like, and the thing I couldn't put my finger on what it was reminding me of at the time, but it's like, not only does the white suit make the tie stand out more and make the suit look even creepier. I couldn't put my finger on why it was creepier and then I remembered, um, there was a Tumblr post where someone amalgamated every descriptive factor that humans commonly use in stories about monsters. And they were like, what happened in humanity's early I muted myself and you couldn't hear me exclaiming, but I know exactly the post you're talking about. Did you see the one with the artist's rendering? Um, I saw one with a person in white makeup with fangs and black eyes. Yup. Yeah. And they're like, That's what, what he looks like in human history to make us all afraid of these specific things, which like, while that's a fun and romantic idea, the fact is it's an amalgamation of lots of predator animals and things that were venomous and could kill us for a long time until we developed houses. Um, but the but picture also- of the person it is creepy. That image mm-hmm. has, it's haunting. It's horrifying. And I have to it- scroll past it whenever I see it. I don't like it. Yeah. And that's what makes it reminds me of in this scene with the white suit and the red tie. I thought, legit, thought you were going to say Colonel Sanders. Because <laughs> that's what I thought. Well, no, I um, can't heck and unsee that. With the, the white suit. <laughs> so they're talking about how there's no heir to the Verger fortune. And Hannibal just goes, unless biology provides another. Like, Hannibal, did you seriously just imply at him that Margot is pregnant? You son of a bitch. Yeah, I... I uh, ugh. Every time I think I can, don't think I can get more upset at this man. Every time. Yeah, like, and Will makes this point later in the episode, I think, that... Um, Hannibal here, he's just, he has like four people in his puppet strings, and he is just trying to see which one of them will kill the other ones first. 
basically. Um, also, really quick while I'm thinking about it, I finally remembered the name of the Verger estate. It's called Muskrat Farm, which they do refer to that at some points in the show. I think it's probably next season. Um, but I wanted to start getting that in my vocabulary so that I know what I'm talking about next season when it shows up. So, oh, that's why Margo's license plate says Muskrat 3. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot about it until today. So, um, wow. Okay, let's move on from that gross Mason. So, Freddie has a funeral. And Alana is there kind of hanging back from the crowd. And Will walks up in his long coat and scarf. And I die a little bit inside. And then, um, so she says she has a lot of reasons for wanting to come to Freddy's funeral. But then why is Will here? And Will just says, well, it's common for a killer to revisit their victims after death. To attend funerals or return to crime scenes. Like... Will, I get what you're doing, but can you stop doing it, please? <sighs> like, stop being this guy. Although I love it. But please stop. You were not meant to be a bitter boy. Um, and then she's like, profiling him as a killer and he just says are you profiling me dr bloom and i was like me the master profiler you're profiling me okay good luck with that boo boo (sighs) like he's just straight up nasty to alana at this point yeah my one note on this scene was as a willana shipper thanks i hate it um and it's kind of a brief scene so then the next thing is uh at hannibal's office having therapy question mark because they're not in the therapy chairs they're sitting at hannibal's desk together yeah which like just when you think the scenes between these two can't get any more like cozy and instant intimate they do and they keep getting more so as we'll see throughout these two episodes And they're talking about how Will is going to be a father. And Hannibal has this bit about how fathers aren't always nurturing. Fathers can be killers. And I just said, raise your hand if you forgot about Abigail Hobbs again. Because I did. I kind of feel bad. Um, But I was like, oh, right. Because her father killed her or tried to kill her. Um, World's worst dead, dad. mm Mm-hmm. And then Will says, I would be a good father. And Hannibal has the cutest, softest smile. Because, like, in his mind, they were their little murder family. It was him and Will and Abigail Hobbs. So, like, he, he knows that Will would be a good dad. And he wants him to be his murder dad husband. Like, it's so cute. Um, and then we learned more about Hannibal's sister and her name was Misha and he says that he never had children but he had the sister and that he was in charge of her and that Abigail reminded him of her 
And Will says, why did you kill her? And I was like, wait, kill Abigail or kill Misha? Because I don't know if he killed Misha. I don't remember if we learned that at any point. But that was my first thought when Will said that. So that was interesting. And then this whole scene, I feel like this is the most genuine, open, and emotionally vulnerable we have seen these two men talking to each other. They are crying. They're both crying. Um, because Hannibal later, he says, I'm sorry I took that from you. I wish I could give it back. When Will's talking about dreaming of teaching Abigail how to fish. Yeah. And it's um, just, ugh. I did think it was interesting that Will mentioned that because we haven't really seen that beyond like the first couple episodes of this season. Like so much has happened between now and then that I almost forgot about those too. This season has been a year and a half. It is a roller coaster. Um, And then we hear about Hannibal's teacup thing that he does. He says that sometimes he drops teacups to watch them shatter and he wants the pieces to come back together. And he says, someday perhaps. And it's a really interesting metaphor. And I'm trying to remember if we talked about how Will Graham is a fragile little teacup. If we did, it was very brief. Because I searched the word teacup in the Google Doc and I didn't find anything, but I swear I remember that Hannibal says that Jack sees Will as the fine china to be used when company comes over, something like that. Because then Will asks how he sees him and Hannibal says, I see you as the mongoose that I want under my house when the snake slithers by which we're seeing that come to fruition now, which is fun. Um, But I think Will is a fragile teacup. So that was interesting. Um, So then Hannibal says, someday perhaps, you know, the pieces will come back together. And then we see a shot of a teacup shattered on the floor and the pieces come back together to form a whole teacup. So that was interesting. And I, and I wanted to talk about that. What is it that was broken that's coming together? It could be a lot of things. I mean, if you look at it one way, it could be, you know, Hannibal's little plans for his murder family even if they're down a kid, he's still, as far as he knows, getting Will and his little plans for his murder pal or husband, depending on how you interpret it, are coming to fruition. But also, I think Will's sanity and faith in himself has definitely come back together. 
Ooh, so it's the teacup as Will, but the teacup also has the family. I like that. I think so. And it could be other things, too. Those are just the two that I thought of. Yeah. I remember when I watched this for the first time, being like, I am not smart enough to understand this. Um, But then every time watching it since, I know what's coming. So in hindsight, everything made sense. But so that's why I wanted to get your your thoughts on it, because you have that fresh perspective. Um, So then there's a crime Um, or a, a crime scene or a scene. Grave robbing's a crime, right? So, I'm, I, I'm, I hope, I, I think hope it is. I kind of hope it is. So Freddie's corpse has been disinterred, and with two other pairs of arms stolen from nearby graves, turned into an effigy of the goddess of destruction Kali, with six arms. Uh, so naturally, everyone is there to check it out. Uh, Price and Zeller and Jack and Alana and Will and Hannibal and um, and and Alana makes the call this time she says whoever killed Freddie killed Randall Tear and Jack is like oh well they have a connection it's Will um so that's a development yeah and then Alana says he's building himself up or someone's building him up and Will says he could have a benefactor who admires his destruction and I said we have finally arrived at the part of the show where the mirror is gone and they are face to face with real life and talking about things without being weird about it Um, but then I wondered what does Jack think of all this because we see surprisingly little of him in this season or in this kind of half of the season now that Will is out of jail. Yeah. Because um, we saw a lot of Jack and like how he felt about all the murders and the stuff that was going on during season one, but we see very little of him in season two, um, which I found super interesting. And then Alana says, and I, I should feel bad because she's crying because she knows what she's talking about and we the viewer know what she's talking about and I should feel bad because she's crying and I'm sorry that I do not she says it's a courtship and all my head did was in the Austin Powers voice be like yeah baby Amber, a woman has been, a woman has had her grave desecrated. But courtship and murder husbands. Um, I know. And I was like, I should feel bad about this. And I don't. And I feel bad that I don't feel bad about it. It's not that I mind that you don't feel bad. I realize that Hanagram's going to Hanagram, but Austin Powers is this the time? It was just in my head. And in my defense, I've never seen any of the Austin Powers movies. I just know that one voice. Um, so we go to Muskrat Farm. And uh, Margot has come back from riding her horse. And oh. Mason comes and bees gross at her. 
And he says, for a breeding family, we don't do much of it ourselves. Like, could he be any more obvious? And then he makes sure to mention that he has viable sperm. In case you were curious, Mason has viable sperm. Like, for one horrible moment. Like, for one really horrible moment. I was afraid that Mason was going to rape his sister. You know what? I was too, and I've seen this before. Like, he's... I'm still afraid of that. Well, not by the end of these two episodes, but... He looks rapey all the time. All the time. And the fact, like, that's not a thing you say to your sibling. That's not a th- Like, I don't have any full siblings. I have two halves. I have two half-siblings because my dad had two kids from a previous marriage. And I have two half-siblings because my birth mom got married, fell in love, had two kids of her own. But, and I wasn't raised with any of them, but, you know... I'm not an expert on siblings, but I'm pretty sure you don't talk about having viable sperm, especially to your sibling of the opposite sex. It kind of makes me wonder if he has in the past. Because all we know is that they've tried to kill each other, or that she tried to kill him, and that he He injures her enough to leave scars, multiple, in various places. I honestly kind of assumed he had in the first scene that we see of him attacking her. Right? They never say it. But But I get the vibe. It's a very rapey attack. Yeah. Well, and and as we later figure out, that eel is being kept in an aquarium that's in the floor. So she was on the floor, whatever that's worth, that first time we see her when she's crying. It wasn't a raised aquarium. It was the floor. Yeah. Um, Because we see it later in episode 12. So that's gross. And then he mentions twice that she looks radiant. Slash rosy. And then it reminded me too that now two people in this episode have been called radiant. Margot and Will. The parents. So that was interesting. I mean, you talk about pregnant people glowing. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Mason's the worst. And, like, you can tell that he doesn't want to say the word glow. <gasps> he did say bloom. And I was like, why is that significant? And I just now remembered that Alana's last name is Bloom. <sighs> I was like, why is that word so familiar? That's why. Um, so then that scene just kind of ends. Yeah. And There's then, so much going on now that every scene is just kind of like stuff, stuff, thing, stuff, <laughs> stuff, things. Yeah, no, I I think my only note for that scene was feed into his pigs, Margot. Just do it. Just do it. Jesus Christ. He is the worst. Um, so then <clears throat> we're at Hannibal's house. And 
I I think they're in the therapy chairs here because it comes into play in a minute. Um, and Hannibal says, every creative act has its destructive consequence. And it just reminded me of the every action has an equal opposite reaction to law of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, or whatever it is, Newton's, one of his laws. Um, but of course, I heard it in David Diggs's voice, like from Hannibal, or Hamilton. Wow. <laughs> I haven't done that out loud yet. No, um, I'm just imagining <laughs> dropping David Diggs's Jefferson in this. Every action has an equal opposite reaction. Then he just leaves. (laughs) He just comes in to throw in sound bites and then walks out again. Um, Ooh, I have a gift to send you. Let me write it down so I don't forget. Okay. Um, Well, depending on how attractive you find him, you may or may not like this gift. Um, How attractive I find David Diggs? David Diggs, Yeah. Well, he's not unattractive by any means. I'll just send it to you. You don't judge me for stuff. No. Uh, <laughs> Gosh, no. So, I told talking. you, Amber, I told you that I find Killian Murphy as, that I found Killian Murphy as Scarecrow attractive. We're there. My favorite TV show is about a cannibal. It's fine. Um, this is our friendship. <laughs> and so, okay, this part is so weird. Before I get into it, because I, and I don't want to distract myself, in this scene, Hannibal is wearing my colors and also your colors, but mostly my colors. That is to say, rust orange with some turquoise accents. Yeah. Um, yas queen. Yas queen. That's all. Okay, so Will says, you sacrificed Abigail. You cared about her as much as I did. But then... We cut to, or the camera goes to look at Hannibal in Hannibal's chair, but it's not Hannibal in Hannibal's chair, it's Will in Hannibal's chair, making a Hannibalish face at himself. So, Will sees himself in Hannibal's chair. I've never noticed this before on the other two times I've watched this show, so I'm kind of freaking out. So, okay, so Will sees himself in Hannibal's chair. We're used to, as the viewer, seeing things from Will's perspective. Whatever weird thing he's seeing, we see it. That's established in the language of the show. Um, so he says, you cared about it as much as I did. Then Hannibal says, maybe more. And then we see from Hannibal's POV, which has never happened before, Hannibal as Will in Will's chair, listening to him. Like the the blurring, the merging. It has not begun. It it is. Here it is happening. See it. Behold. And it's this moment where they just, you know. It's like I said, talking about Abigail, now they're to this point. It's the most emotional and vulnerable we see them and will already has perfect empathy so it's like they're seeing it's almost like will's i'm trying to say this right will is seeing not only 
Hannibal the adversary, Hannibal the danger, Hannibal the Chesapeake Ripper, the killer, the what have you. It's he's seeing the the real similarities between them and the fact that, you know, he did care about Abigail in his own way, in his own mind as much as Will did. But yeah, they're starting to not only like see the truth of each other, but to see themselves in each other. Which I don't, I think they could always see the truth of each other, but it is more recent that they're like, oh, it's not just that. It's that we are becoming very similar. Like, Will has a line, it's either in this episode or the next one, where he accuses Hannibal of fostering codependency. But the thing about codependency is the co part. It's not just Will being dependent on Hannibal. That's not what Hannibal's fostering. It's, it's a back and forth. It goes both ways. So it's like, like, it used to be Hannibal on a level above Will, you know, in a position of power. And they talked about that at the beginning of this season with Peter and Slimy Clark. Um, but they're on equal footing now, which is interesting. Um, and then Hannibal goes on to compare himself to God. Again. He keeps doing that in this season. Well, he's incredibly narcissistic, obviously. Um, I, I played you that, that song, right? Episode. Which song? The narcissistic cannibal song. No. I didn't? I swear I sent it to you. Because oh, no, we've maybe... talked about it before. No, maybe you did. Anyway. Um, anyway. He is, though. He says that he hasn't been bothered by any considerations of deity. So Hannibal's an atheist, basically. Um, other than to recognize how my own modest actions pale beside those of God. He's talking about killing people. God kills people. Hannibal talks about it constantly. So it's not like he needs justification because he doesn't care enough to need justification, but he he's like justifying himself killing because God kills. And then apparently at this point I got distracted by how achingly beautiful Will is in this scene because that's my next note. So See, yeah. My next note was to name the title of a song in the Heather's musical. There's I am unfamiliar with the Heathers. So I love the Heathers movie. And I love the musical because the music and lyrics are by the same person who did the music for the Legally Blonde musical. And also, Barrett Wilbert Weed is an amazing vocalist, and she's my queen, and I would die for her. But there is the song that closes out Act One of Heather's the Musical is a song that JD sings to Veronica about the title of the song is our love is god and i can't remember which line exactly of hannibal's made me think of it but basically the song is jd saying you know you there's a line you are the only thing that's right about this broken world and like 
basically he ends up killing two people at the end of it. I did know there was murder. That is the only thing I know about the Heathers, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I totally feel it. You know what I mean? Like, I see it. So then Hannibal says, should the universe contract, should time reverse and teacups come together, a place could be made for Abigail in your world. Obviously, dude still wants his murder family. Um, while all this is happening, Will visualizes next to them a giant six-armed Shiva Wendigo. And Shiva, not Shiva, uh, Kali. Why did I do that? Twice. I did that twice in my notes. Um, Kali Wendigo. Next to them in the room there, Will sees a giant Kali Wendigo with six arms. And Kali is the, the destroyer, but also a creator because you have to destroy to create new things. Um, which is a very powerful Wendigo imagery. What, what, what? And it also bridges them with the arms. That's why I thought of our love as God. Oh, there you go. We got there. I think. Um, my next note is, yay, more therapy with Mason. That's, that's all. <sighs> um, Hannibal confirms that Margot is pregnant, which seems like a good idea. That's all I have to say about that, apparently. Is this the scene where Mason is sitting in Hannibal's desk chair? No, because I wrote that one down, which means there's another one. So much to look forward to. <sighs> that is the, the noise that Mason makes. That's a weird thing s- when you did that. That is the noise that Mason Verger makes my soul make. So... It's still the same day because Hannibal is still wearing that rust orange shirt with the orange and turquoise tie, which I noticed because it's been my color combination since I was about 17. I didn't realize that until I was about 23, but it's true. Oh, yeah. Um, Once I get all my decor up on my walls, now that I can afford to go and buy a a buttload of command strips, etc., Um, you will see how all of my art is orange and blue. Um, So Alana comes over later the same day. Long day for Hannibal. They're sitting on the couch and she says that she's feeling pressured to believe something she doesn't trust and it's making her paranoid. And I couldn't decide if she feels pressured to believe that Will is a killer because that's what Will wants her to think. Or if she's being pressured to believe Will's not a killer by herself and or Jack. What do you think? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. Like, I wasn't sure in this scene either. I also, I almost want to think that it's left ambiguous on purpose. So that we feel just as confused as Alana is feeling. Because that's a thing you can do with, like, I don't think, I think you, it's a thing you should do sparingly as a person who writes stories that are going to be experienced like this. But it's a very, it's a thing you can do to leave the audience as confused as Alana is probably feeling. Because, like, in her shoes, yeah, I'd be confused too. I would be paranoid about all the things. That's a really good point. I tend to forget. Um, that's why I could never be a mystery writer. 
you have to take your audience along for the ride. Sorry, my throat is super dry. And this is more talking than I've done in like since last time we recorded, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's a super good point. Um, but, and it always just really impresses me about mystery stories and movies or novels or whatever is that the creator knows all the answers, obviously. And oh, yeah. they're not giving them to you. And for some reason, I never really thought about that until like very recently. And I was like, oh, whoa. Um, then Hannibal says, Will is finally finding himself. He's getting better. He's getting better, question mark? What did I write? What is happening right now? My brain, I'm so sorry. Um, it's okay. I, I'm super scatterbrained right now. So Hannibal's trying to be cute. He can usually distract Alana by being cute about something. So he's like, Will is finally finding himself. He's getting better, but it's not working. Like, and we've seen him do this the last few episodes, is that he, he tries to be cute about something, and Alana's like, oh, and then they kiss, and then everything's fine, but it's not working anymore. Um, he goes to kiss her hand, and he smells the gunpowder on her hand from when she was at the firing range, and she says, I told you I was feeling paranoid. And then the next time they kiss, he leaves his eyes open. Wide heckin' open. Looks like the jig is up, Hannibal. Um, because, like, she doesn't know what's going on. She just knows that she wants to learn how to use a gun. But he knows, oh, that gun's probably going to be used on me at some point. Because where would she have gotten a gun? From Will. Because if Will is on Hannibal's team... Why would he give her a gun? Why would she think she needs one? Right? We're starting to see all of this unfold. We've been seeing kind of a one-sided story all for the second half of this season since Will got out of jail. Or maybe even before that. And, um, and we're starting to see the other side now. Uh, more and more, especially in the next few scenes. It's been like an hour and a half. Oh my god. Um, it's 10 o'clock. Yes, it we is. We started at like 8.30. We're not even done with episode 11 yet. Yeah. Lord, bear me strength. Okay. <laughs> I um, forgot about that expression. <laughs> it's from The Office. That's the thing I miss about not recording in person is I can't just pull out my phone and show you the office references whenever I make them. Uh. Um, so we see Margot. She is loading up her car with luggage. She is running away. Her car gets run down by a pickup truck. It's Carlo, Mason's henchman. Fun fact, I forgot what Carlo looked like because my nose was like, oh no. Oh no, no, who the F are you? Who is the scary Italian mafia? Oh, right. No, I had to look it up because I was like, who are you? <laughs> Uh, so scary Italian mafia looking guy, it's Carlo. Um, it doesn't help that Mason gets a new guy later. So yeah, too many guys to keep track of. Um, and then we see her on an operating table 
Nixon is sterilizing her. And they're in red scrubs, which I I know so why creepy. red scrubs are a thing, but they are very unsettling. Super creepy to look at, especially in this context. Um, so yeah, he's sterilizing her because he didn't kill her in the car crash, which I don't think he was planning to do anyway. This is worse. And why would the worst man not do the worst thing? So, I didn't even think of it as a possibility. The worst. Like, Jesse and I were sitting on the couch, Gwenny on my lap, in my arms, watching this. And we were both very horrified and very unsettled. So Alana goes to talk to Jack at the FBI, and she's like, what are you up to? I know something's up. I know everyone is lying. Do you think Will killed Freddie? And Jack says, no, I don't think that. So this scene. Yeah. Um, Before we get to the big thing, I just, I like what Alana says to Jack. She's like, you don't know Hannibal and you don't know Will. You're going to lose. And then he's just like, I want you to come with me. And then he takes her to a room there at the FBI. And Freddie is in that room. And she She asks, how was my funeral? Freddie lives! I love her so much. I love that she went with this. She's alive. Jack knew the whole time. Which means it wasn't her in the wheelchair. It wasn't her dental records. They did not eat her. One thing that I did not even consider until just now with the theory, because Jesse and I had the theory that there that freddie might be just in hiding for this yeah i remember but did jack do a switcheroonie on freddie's dental records somehow or are price and zeller also in on this Ooh, that's a good question i don't think they're in on it i think the fewer people know stuff the better but jack could have done that for sure okay i mean probably Within this universe, it's probably possible. Because, like, no offense to Price and Zeller, but with how salty they were being with Chilton, I can't really see them being good enough actors to pull this off. Yeah, I love them, but they're ridiculous. Um, so, yeah. Unless, unless, unless Jack alive. gave them the talking to. Also, this scene has some major other thoughts about. Oh, then let's, let's hear that. I want to hear your thoughts about the scene, because I have lots of them, but I don't want to say them if you don't also have them. Okay, so, welcome to the continuing saga of Lindsay relates stuff in the show to King Arthur and Green Knight kind of stuff, because Alana is in green, and she continues to kind of take Freddy's Green Knight thing from season one, because she is in green, and she is telling Jack, you know, face up. This is how things are going to go. I know these men. This is how it's going to go down. You need to be honest with me. What's going on? And that's that's kind of what the Green Knight does to King Arthur. And Jack is in purple. It's a muted purple. He's not as shiny in this scene. And then we see Freddy. That was my biggest thing. It's just like more more of my weird fascination with this whole I don't 
I don't think, I don't think, I don't know that this was a thing that Brian Fuller did on purpose, but he but did it by playing a, out. He did it it's by really accident. Interesting. I wonder if it's because Arthurian legends are so ingrained in not just pop culture, but culture in general, that a lot of those archetypes resurface again and again. I wouldn't be surprised. I just, the fact that she's alive raises questions about what happened after Will pulled her out of the car. Because we know that it wasn't faked because we saw it happening. So I imagine that Will had to get her back to his house, calm her down, and say, hey, we've got part of what we need. Do you want to catch a killer? At which point, I imagine Freddy was very confused, but also like, I'm confused, I'm scared, but go on. Well, and think back to what he said to her when he found her in the barn. He was like, I need you to explain. I can't let you leave here until you hear what I have to say. And if what he told her is, this is all fake, I need you to help me catch Hannibal, she would absolutely be on board with that. Especially if he confirms to her that Hannibal killed Abigail, because like, for all that Freddy, for all of Freddy's faults, and she does have them, I love her, but she has them, I feel like she took Abigail's death very personally. Yeah, she cared about her. I feel like at any point, if Will Graham had said, this is part of a thing to catch Hannibal, and also he killed Abigail Hobbs, you in, I feel like at that point, Freddie would just be like, yes, I am in. I am Let, in. Let's fake my death and nail this bitch to a wall. Yeah, like, you know she's kind of totally enjoying this. Oh, shit. Um, why did I say it like that? I would... Uh, Kate, you do this more than I do, I swear. <sighs> um, it's my superpower. It has been so, my superpower all my life. I walk in to the double entendre because I don't think about it and guard myself from it. But that's what makes it so entertaining. Um, I would love to live in this scene, but we gotta keep going. So Will... So Hannibal is, or Will and Hannibal go to visit Margot in the hospital. Will doesn't say anything. He just leaves. It's like a 30 second scene. He goes to Muskrat Farm and he jumps on Carlo outside, like in the yard. And Mason is just like hanging out with his pigs in like a fancy chair. And then Will walks up and he punches him in the face. And Mason is like, I'm going to feed you to my pigs. Um... And then, oh, this is the part what I was talking about before, that Hannibal's manipulating all of this. Will says, do you think it was Margot's idea to have an heir? Do you think it was your idea to take it from her? Do you think it was my idea to come here and kill you? Hannibal is the one you should be feeding to your pigs. He made all of this happen. He put all these thoughts in our heads. And now here we are, you just tried to kill your sister and took her uterus. He's not so, yeah. wrong, but it was worth it was worth it to see him punch Mason in the face. Oh, it was so rewarding. Oh, that cleared my skin and took a and took like added a year to my life. Yeah. Watching Will punch Mason Berger in the face. 
Um, and he wants to kill him. He puts his gun to his head. But then he says, no, it's Hannibal. You should be feeding to your pigs. Oh, hi, Chainsaw. Please get down. No, my final note for this was, baby boy is in control. And it's so refreshing. That's the end of episode 11. We finally made it. Um, I'm going to turn my heater on for a minute, and I'm going to shut Chainsaw in my bedroom. And I'm going to pause the recording. Hey there, listeners. It's Amber. Um, There's about another hour and a half of conversation left about Season 2, Episode 12. So I'm actually going to end this podcast here. And I'll be releasing the second part on Saturday. So this is Episode 13, Part 1. And then tomorrow I will release Episode 13, Part 2 to talk about Episode 12, Our recording ended up being about three and a half hours long because there's just so much to cover and I didn't want to make anybody sit through that. So I'm going to end the episode here and you'll get the rest of it tomorrow. Normal and Good Podcast is produced by me, Amber Sorensen. The theme music is Red Hills Solstice from the album Round the World by Lobo Loco and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find this track and more at freemusicarchive.org music slash Lobo underscore Loco. For more, visit my website normalandgood.com or find me on Twitter at Amber underscore Jane underscore nine. Thanks for listening. Yeah.